this week on the Back Table Podcast. And so I just started taking 20 millimeter uh, diameter uh, coils that were 15 centimeters long and really just deploying them like a stent, you know, advance them to the end of the catheter, pin the wire and pull the catheter back. And I presented that data at guest maybe 2018. But our, our occlusion rates are basically 100% doing it that way. So it works really well. And it comes with the advantages of, you know, fewer coils. So you're reducing your procedure time, your fluoro time. And then I think the other advantage of it is, you know, that people have packed those stainless steel coils in and you have, you know, you can have pain from those coils. And I, I just don't think it's necessary to put 20, 30 coils into somebody's pelvis. It just, it's not required to get an occlusion. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter, or email us to let us know what we can do to make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Medtronic offers a comprehensive portfolio of products for the embolization of the peripheral vasculature. Learn more about the MVP microvascular plug system and Concerto detachable coil system at medtronic.com slash embolization. This is Michael Barraza, your host for today's episode. We're going to be focusing on pelvic congestion syndrome. Mark, you also pointed out that a lot of these patients are just having their left ovarian vein treated and they're getting early recurrence. So, you know, when you're going into a routine case, what is your, your overarching, you know, what's your goal of therapy? What do you plan to embolize? Do you do it all at once or, or do you do any kind of planning, planned stage therapies? You know, I, I, I do try to do it all at once, although I think there are people who get good results from staging it. I, I tend to do it uh, all at once. And, and, you know, in the last six months or so, I've sort of changed my algorithm for the way I do things. I, I used to always probably do what most people do, look at the left ovarian first, look at the right ovarian vein, and then look at both internal iliacs. And, and I tend to use balloon occlusion venography to look at the internal iliacs. So I really make sure I'm seeing uh, all of the pelvic venous plexuses. And, and what's always surprising to me, people talk about, well, if I embolize the left ovarian vein, that's sclerosant. If I'm using sclerosant, it's going to go across the pelvis and get the right side. But if you do that and then go look at the right side, almost always you'll see residual varices at the end of the right ovarian vein, despite already embolizing the left. And what I've sort of started doing recently, just because I I, I, I was worried I was missing things, if you, if you do both ovarian veins and then go look at the internal iliac veins, sometimes you don't find a whole lot there. I found if I go to the internal iliac veins first, and that's what I've started doing probably in the last six months is first looking at the internal iliac veins before even going to the ovarian veins, you almost always find, you know, varices arising uh, from the uterine vein with that. And so now I've started treating those first and then moving on to the ovarian veins. And similar to what you find with the o ovarian veins, if you do the internal iliacs first, you always find residual varices related to the um the ovarian veins. And it's one of the things that bothers me a little bit about the people who um, are proposing that iliac stenting is a good solution. Almost none of them have selective internal iliac venography to even document that they're filling their varices off of the distal tributaries of the internal iliac vein. They, they just can't demonstrate that I've put a catheter in the uterine vein and I can 
see the uterine venous plexus filling around to the ovarian vein. And I think if you're going to go down that route of doing iliac vein stenting for this, you ought to be able to document that, in fact, the internal iliac vein is, is giving rise to, to periuterine varicosities. That, Mark, that's a great point. And, you know, I, I think a lot of this, unfortunately, has been driven by, well, two factors. One is industry. And then uh, the other is people that maybe have a stent skill set, but do not have an embolization skill set. And that's why that decision to, to just stent everything is happening. I, I think you're exactly right, because I, I think, as, as you know, people have done this. I mean, the, the right ovarian vein can be tricky at times. And I think people just don't spend the time learning to develop that skill set to be able to, in most cases, cannulate those. And, and, and to really, you know, I, I think if you question most people who do pelvic venous disease about internal iliac venous anatomy, I, I think there's a I think there's a vast dearth of knowledge about the anatomy, the internal iliac vein. And it's tough anatomy and it's tough to see. On, it on. is. <laughs> with, that, with that being said, I'd like to know what balloon uh, occlusion catheter do you uh, like to use? I, I generally use a Berenstein, a six French Berenstein catheter. And I, I use it both for, I think that we may talk about that multiple techniques. And I, I did look at, at, some of your stuff on the web, Michael, there are several techniques to treat the ovarian veins and the internal iliac veins. I, I tend to use an occlusion balloon both for the ovarian veins and the internal iliac veins and, and use it, uh, use a combination of sclerosin, usually 3% sodium tetradecal sulfate foam that I sort of rely on the balloon to hold that in place for three or four minutes while you're deploying coils. And then I also use it in the internal iliac vein to sort of uh, make sure that you can get retrograde flow into the varices in the internal iliac vein. Do you, do you, do you use something different? I have not used balloon occlusion, but I've, I've thought about it, but I've just kind of found it cumbersome. So I've, I've not done that. Is there a particular balloon occlusion catheter you're using? Is, uh... I, I, I personally use the, the, the six French Berenstein. Oh, sorry. It's a Boston Scientific catheter, but, you know, and it, and it works well. It's not perfect in that it's a, a little bit stiff, particularly at the end of it. And it can be particularly in the internal iliac, sometimes a little bit difficult to negotiate some real tortuous anatomy. But in general, I find that works pretty well for me. Got it. Yeah. Do you use a balloon occlusion in the diagnostic venogram or just when you're treating? Both. I, I particularly in the internal iliacs, I, yeah. I think it can be real helpful um, just to, to get rid of the anagrade flow and, and allow, you know, particularly I think if you're looking for pelvic escape points to the extra pelvic veins, the, the balloon occlusion can be real helpful in, in demonstrating some of those. And, and I, I personally find it's very helpful for me. I also people see people who do absolutely beautiful internal iliac venograms without using it. So uh, I, I, it works well for me and I like it a lot, but I also think people get very good results um, if they're good at it uh, without it. Let's talk a little bit about the, the venogram. I mean, are you guys doing Valsalva? You know, do you do, you know, any, any different positioning of patients or anything like that? Or is it just standard, standard positioning and, and just a routine venogram? I generally approach the procedure as a, as a therapeutic and not a diagnostic procedure. So I'm not looking for, uh, I'm not trying to simulate reflux. I'm not sure, sure. how physiologic the whole situation is anyways with them supine on the table. Yeah, no, I, I don't. 
Is there anything on venography that can really change your plan in there? You know, something that you see that just completely changes your approach? Undoubtedly, I'm sure there's something. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not like, oh, this is an artery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Generally, I'm coming in and I'm thinking, you know, I, I, I try to do that with all the arterial venous disease I do. I, I don't like doing diagnostic things on the table. If I can figure out ahead of time exactly what I'm going to do, I think the case is much smoother. It's, it's better thought out. Not that you, you know, don't run into surprises, but I don't know how physiologic it is. Like, you know, sticking a catheter in an ovarian vein and doing a Valsalva maneuver. I, I don't, I, I just don't really know what that means, you know? So like when I do a varicocele embolization, I, I, I mean, they've had an ultrasound. I know the vein's incompetent. I, I'm not looking for it on venography. Right. I don't know that I've ever actually selected an ovarian vein when I wasn't already planning to treat. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what a normal one would, would look like. <laughs> Mark, what about you? You know, I, I, I don't tend to, I totally agree. I rely pretty much on the ultrasound to tell me that there's reflux in that left or right ovarian vein. And, and I feel pretty confident. I, I do tend to if I'm working with our fixed imaging equipment, I do tend to put them in, in pretty steep foot down position. But if I see without a Valsalva from just a left renal vein injection that it's, that it's filling the left ovarian vein, I feel pretty confident that there's reflux in it. I, I do see a fair number, just because of the nature of my practice, and a fair number of people who are referred for a diagnosis of renal vein compression which many times that's, that's not the diagnosis. So the one thing on the venogram that in, in those patients that will change um, my approach to it is if I see really, if I see renal hilar varices or uh, really extensive lumbar azygous collaterals, particularly going superiorly, or if you see inferior collaterals that go down and, and fill the ascending lumbar vein off of the common iliac vein, then I'll, I'll revise uh, my thinking a little bit if I, I see that. And so that's the one patient population. If a patient is referred with renal vein compression and I'm just skeptical that it's not, that will change my thinking about it a little bit. All right, I'm with you. Hey, Michael, tell me about uh, your technique for embolizing the, uh, the ovarian vein. You know, I, I got your link you know, from your website and uh, pretty cool technique for coiling that you're using. Yeah. So it was sort of a, just an accidental uh, thought, I guess, was, you know, why are we packing in all these coils and do we really need to do this? And, you know, you'd have the odd coil occasionally that deployed, you know, like a string rather than a coil. And on our follow-up, this really started with the varicoceles. We'd see them, we see all our varicoceles a month later and redo the ultrasound but we still had great occlusion rates. And so I just started taking um, 20 millimeter uh, diameter coils that were 15 centimeters long and really just deploying them like a stent, you know, advance them to the end of the catheter, pin the wire and pull the catheter back. And I presented that data at guest maybe 2018, but our, our occlusion rates are basically 100% doing it that way. So it works really well. And it comes with the advantages of, you know, fewer coils. So you're reducing your procedure time, your fluoral time. And then I think the other advantage of it is, you know, that the people have packed those stainless steel coils in and you have, you know, you can have pain from those coils. Right. 
And I, I just don't think it's necessary to put 20, 30 coils into somebody's pelvis. It just, it's not required to get an inclusion. Mark, what about you? I mean, any, any pearls or pitfalls in embolizing these patients? I mean, it can be kind of hard to get, you know, reliable endpoint in these. It's not like embolizing a splenic artery for trauma. I, I tend to really rely a lot on the, on the sclerosant. And, and so, you know, my, my usual approach is, like I mentioned, I'll use the, the occlusion balloon and I'll sort of, you know, park it just above where the two or th three tributaries um, come together, you know, sort of over the SI joint. And then I'll inflate the balloon, do venography and, and just sort of calibrate the volume of the, the pelvic venous reservoir. And, and then I use uh 3% sodium tetradecal sulfate foam and will, and, and I, and it, it's expensive and it probably isn't uh, entirely necessary, but I, I'm just sort of used to from the malformation world to pacifying the, the sclerosant with the thiodol. So I, I, I usually uh, mix 10 cc's of sotradecol with three cc's of a thiodol, make a foam out of it. And that's the one thing about the thiodol. It does make a very, very stable foam once you do it and then use sort of a reverse road mapping modality on the um, imaging equipment to inject an equal volume of sclerosant, follow it through the, the pelvic veins um, with fluoroscopy. And then while I'm letting it sit in the um, sit in that bed beneath the occlusion balloon, I tend to deploy. I, I I like a I use a sandwich technique where usually I deploy three three clusters of coils up the left ovarian vein and put sclerosin in between them. So I'll while that that sclerosin is in the pelvic varices, put two or three coils there, back up one and a half to two vertebral bodies, inflate the balloon again, put in another one to two cc's of sclerosant, put another two, three coils in, and then back up to just the um, confluence of the ovarian vein, do the same thing. But I, I totally agree that I, I look at these ovarian veins that are just packed with 20 or 30 coils and, and don't see the need for it. And then simultaneously, I, you know, I think it's the, uh, a real industry-driven thing now with the long detachable coils, which clearly raise the cost a lot. And I just, I'm not sure you need to fill the whole ovarian vein with a super long detachable coils. If you either do what Michael's talking about or do, you know, I, I, I in general get by with eight to nine coils in three clusters up the ovarian vein. Do either of you coil in the internal iliacs or just sclerosin? I, I, I will use an occlusion balloon to sort of try to keep the coil in place, but I've got to be really secure that that coil is number one, that it's needed, and number two, it's not going anyplace. So probably... 90% of the time of just using sclerosant. And no plugs, just coils. Right. right. I'm with you. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who've had to go, I'm, I'm one of them, who've had to go fishing for internally lit coils that have ended up in the pulmonary arteries. Not my own. Yeah, somebody else's coils yeah. uh, I've gone fishing for. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's talk about kind of post-procedure management. When are you seeing these patients back in clinic? I I tend to do a month is kind of my routine follow-up. And again, I like to repeat the ultrasound and, and look at the pelvic varicosities, even if they're feeling better, you know, I think we're still learning a lot right now. So I want to know what I did worked. And it's just like what I do for varicoceles. You know, they come back and they're like, I don't have any pain. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to do the ultrasound because I think it's really important that we document, you know, we know why we did it. We know what we did and we want to know that it worked. So I see them in a month and, and do the ultrasound. Mark, what about you? You know, I, 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 I tend to use a lot of sclerosant and, and I am 
I have no doubt that the initial post-operative pain is a lot worse if you lose a lot of use a lot of sclerosis. It's sort of like treating a malformation or or veins in general with sclerosis. It does incite a lot of inflammation. So I, I tend to have uh, the, my nurse practitioner see them at five to ten days just to make sure their their pain is is on course. And then I, I usually don't want to see them until after their first menstrual period, just to sort of have it, let all the inflammation die down and then see where they are after the, the first menstrual period. And then I usually see them, you know, at three to six months after that, because I think, and I think it's true, you, you look at some of the better done studies in the literature that clearly show, you know, women can continue to get improvement for three to six to nine months after the procedure. So, you know, in those, in those patients who really come back at three months and, and say, gosh, this is a miracle. I'm totally cured. Those patients, I, I have them come back and see me as they need to be. But if they're on the trajectory of getting better, but um, not totally resolved, then I'll usually see them every three months or so for six or nine months. And just, and like Michael said, if, if need be, if they're not entirely better, we re-image them, see if we missed anything and, and go after that. But I, I do think you need some degree of follow-up until they're either stably improved or stably better, but not completely resolved, and then look for other potential causes. Mark, you, you mentioned you use a lot of foam. Do you have a, a limit on the amount of foam and do you use air or CO2 in your foam? The sort of the marker for me is, is I do think I've had a couple of women where I've precipitated horrible migraines if they have a really bad migraine history. So, so if they do have a migraine history, I will usually use CO2, which is a vast minority. So if, if there's no migraine history, I uh, just use air-based foam. And, you know, if you, if you, you know, the, the guidelines in the literature for 10, 12 cc's of foam really have no evidence base behind them. So I, I don't have a limit. I do tend to be, as you start nearing uh, 20 cc's of 3% sotradecol, I, I do tend to back off a little bit because I, I have seen when you, when you exceed 20 cc's of sotradecol, you can get some hematuria with it. It's, it seems to be benign and pretty self-limited in the few patients I've seen, but that's, that's I, I don't follow any strict guidelines, but as I start getting up to you know, the teens of Sotradecol, I, I back off. Great. I, I can, I agree with you. I think that makes total sense. And, you know, this idea that 12 is a magic number isn't all that scientific. No. <laughs> and, and all that scientific may be generous. <laughs> you know, I, I guess the only thing I would say, Michael, is, you know, we have, uh, I, I think part of the problem with this whole area is these confusing syndromes, whether it's May Thurner's or Nutcracker or um, pelvic congestion. And uh, I think in the coming years, we're going to see a big push to come up, well, not to come up with it because we've already come up with it, but to use a C-plike system for like we use for lower extremity venous disease for the pelvis. And in fact, the um, it, it, a multidisciplinary, uh, pretty international panel, SIR was part of it. It included 10 societies, including the American Venus Forum, the ABLS, SIR, American College of Gynecology and Obstetrics, and the International Pelvic Pain Society have come up with a new classification system for pelvic venous disorders called the SVP system. The, the SVP standing for symptoms, severities, and pathophysiology. And it, it, it's been accepted. Uh, it's going to be simultaneously published both in the Journal of Vascular Surgery and in Phlebology 
tried to get uh, JBIR interested in it and they weren't um, as interested. But I, I think it's, and, and it's going to be a first approximation. It's going to need some revisions as people, um, it, it's not the definitive instrument, but it does have, I think it's going to be a step forward in classifying these disorders. The the two SIR representatives were uh, Wally Pabon Ramos and uh, Neil Kelnani, but it did include several interventional radiologists with it. And I think that hopefully should be out, you know, it was just accepted in um in in November, so hopefully it'll be at least published in electronic format in the next couple of months. It will have a um, sort of do an aid adoption. It's going to have a app that goes along with it for both the iPhone and the Android, so you'll be able to sort of see the patient punch punch it in, and it'll give you the classification on the application. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to reading that. Mark, with with verbiage, do you use, I don't even know if we should use the word pelvic congestion anymore and should just call this pelvic venous insufficiency. How do do you feel about the the language we use to describe this? You know, I I think it's um, really misleading, you know, when, when, particularly when people sort of bring the May Thurner and the Nutcracker and everything into it, that it, it gets very, very Misleading. So I think in this document, the suggestion is going to be that we refer to the whole field as just pelvic venous disorders and then refer more to what the underlying pathophysiology is of it. Because, you know, I, I find the one that's particularly troublesome to me is is both the May Thurner and the, the Nutcracker in particular. Because if you do um, IBIS on a lot of these patients who who may or may not have real hemodynamically significant real main compression, you, you see that a lot of the times the SMA um, has nothing to do with it, that it's just a real totic left kidney in a woman with no retroperitoneal fat and the renal vein is just stretched across the aorta. And then, you know, the implication of that is, is if the renal vein's already stretched, doing an operation like a left renal vein transposition is only going to make that stretch worse. So I, I think that the syndromic nomenclature has led to a lot of misconceptions that we probably ought to replace with um, both pelvic venous disorders and then what the underlying etiology is, whether it's primary ovarian internal iliac vein incompetence or those cases of common iliac vein compression, I think provides a, lot, a bunch more information. Uh, and then Mark, I actually have another question for you about the renal vein. You know, you, occasionally you'll do a venogram, a left renal vein venogram, and you'll see a huge ovarian vein and nothing really draining into the inferior vena cava. And, you know, the working, you know, and they may have no symptoms of, of nutcracker, but they've got ba- basically nutcracker anatomy. And the, you know, the concern being, okay, if I embolize this ovarian vein, I'm going to give them nutcracker syndrome. And so one, I'd like to understand if you think that's true. And then the other, the other thing that I've done occasionally a handful of times is in the renal vein, I'll just blow up a 10 millimeter balloon. And if it pulls easily across the, uh, the aorta and the SMA, I'm like, that's just, it's a, it's just a flat vein. It's not a fixed obstruction. And then I'll embolize without worry. But do you think we can cause nutcracker syndrome embolizing in ovarian vein? I, I, I think you can, but I think it's rare. I, I've seen um, two cases of it, you know, in, in 15 years where people sort of, well, maybe three cases have gotten acute um, Dudcracker syndrome, but it's, it, it is, to be honest with you, it's quite rare. And, and you know, some of the, the, the you, you'll see frequently these people with renal vein compression on, on a preoperative imaging study, 
And, and really the things I rely on is if it's a true renal vein compression that's causing dilation of the ovarian vein, I, I think the venographic appearance is very different in that you do a left renal vein injection and you see very rapid flow um, down the left ovarian vein and you see very rapid flow through the uh, pelvic varicostes and then see very rapid anti-grade flow through the 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 right ovarian vein and particularly that rapid flow you know as uh, the guys who beard who initially described pelvic varicostes described you know the contrast hanging out in the pelvic varices for 40 seconds and i think as you know when you, when you inject it, oftentimes you see it hang out there for minutes i think in patients who really have a, a primary renal vein problem they'll clear that contrast very quickly. And then the other thing um, I, I really do like to, if, if I think it's really a renal vein compression, I do like to see those ascending lumbar azygous collaterals and some hilar varices. And I think usually those, those phenographic findings are pretty accurate. There are cases, I, I think your idea of blowing the balloon up is a great idea. I haven't tried that. What I have done occasionally, if I'm in doubt, which is not very often, but if I'm truly in doubt, I'll put an occlusion balloon in the left ovarian vein and have a coaxial catheter in with the other one in the, the renal vein. And if the, um, the renal vein pressure rises dramatically, then I'll take that as evidence that, that that ovarian vein is important to the outflow. But even that I don't have to do very often just because I think most of the time the, the venographic appearance will tell you whether it's okay to embolize the left ovarian vein, which in most cases it is. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I, I'm going to try that next time. I'll, I'll try the occlusion balloon and do you just advance your sheet down over the occlusion you, you, balloon so it's in the left renal vein? You, you can. Yeah, I, I tend to use a, a, an eight French sheet just so you can run the IVUS through it if you need it, but you can, you can put the, the sheath in and just transduce the presser through the sheath. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, look, while we're on the topic, uh, Jeffrey Chick said I, I needed to ask you about your uh, treatment algorithm for nutcracker syndrome. Mark, could you briefly walk us through that? Well, you know, I, 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 I think nutcracker syndrome, is, it's the one thing that I don't like to see as a cause of, of, of uh, the, either pelvic pain or I, I, I actually feel pretty comfortable treating nutcracker syndrome if, if people are presenting with uh, flank pain and hematuria, because that's pretty reliable and you get really good results with that. I think you, the results with pelvic pain from a compensated nutcracker are, are less good. If I, if I do see, I, I, I have done in my career, a lot of left renal vein transpositions. I'm not um, enamored of that operation. And that I think you're just stretching the renal vein more. And most of the time, uh, probably, and even in the Mayo Clinics uh, series, which is the largest series of 30-some patients, uh, somewhat over half of their patients who had a transposition ended up with a stent anyway. So my usual algorithm in a patient presenting who has a very large ovarian vein, like 10 or 12 millimeters, I'll do an ovarian vein transposition on them and just disconnect the ovarian vein down at the pelvis, put a catheter in the distal ovarian vein and, and uh, throws the varices and then transpose the proximal ovarian vein over to the IVC. And that works pretty well. The other thing, I, I usually will offer the patients a renal vein stent. I think renal vein stenting is fraught with potential problems. And I think in particular, both wall stents, and I, I haven't used the new um, dedicated venous stents for that, but I think they're probably too rigid. Wall stents definitely are too rigid to make that curve into the retroperitoneum in the kidney. So I think you... If I am going to do a stent, I will use usually a 14 millimeter arterial stent 
doesn't have as much radial force, but it's going to take that curve a lot better. And, and I actually think if you are very careful about it, I think the thing people really worry about is, is stent migration, which definitely can happen. And it's not uh, a procedure for the faint of heart, but I, I think patients do get better with that. And then who knows what the long-term outcome of that is. So I think it has to be approached pretty um, carefully. But I think the other thing is, is that, you know, really for somebody who has pretty definitive, probably the definitive procedure is a, a renal auto transplantation. And I, I used to send uh, patients to Wisconsin. There's a very group there, very good group there who did a lot of it. But recently, um, one of our uh, transplant surgeons at one of our hospitals in Seattle has started doing auto transplantation. So we do refer a fair number of patients for that. Auto transplantation has sort of started to become like pelvic embolization is in, in that a lot of times it isn't being covered by insurance companies, which is a problem. All right, guys. Well, I, I think that that probably covers everything. Is there anything else either you want to add? Great discussion. Great. I really in, enjoyed it. Yeah. I think I learned more. Yeah, than that was fun. Thank you. <laughs> I talked about <laughs> No, I, 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 I learned something as well, Michael. I think that's a great trick for sliding the balloon across there for a, a nutcracker. I haven't done that. I learned that you can do an auto transplantation for nutcracker. So that, that is not something that I was familiar with. Obviously learned much more, but I've, I've been thinking about that yeah. in the last minute. Well, guys, thank you both for doing this. We really appreciate having us on here. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. 